0: thank you to everyone at tricon who came up and said kind words about the podcast especially the ones who i had never met before and especially the person on the day before the convention started who overheard me and liz and hispania talking on the way back from breakfast and said oh you're from octothorpe i recognize your voice and that was very good that has never happened to me before hello person who listens to octothorpe it was lovely to meet you i hope you had a lovely tricon write in and tell us all about it please Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 67th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 29th of September, 2022. I'm John Coxon.
1: I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Betty.
0: And this is the first time we have been sitting in our places with our microphones in a few weeks. So, hello, Alison and Liz. Last time I saw you, Liz was Perry Middlemiss, and the time before that, I was a computer. So how are you both doing?
1: Well, we did spend a week eating enormous breakfasts together and
0: generally hanging out. Uh, That's true. Was that you guys? Interesting.
2: Yeah, the last time I saw John, I was uh, sneaking out of our hotel room trying not to wake him up at five in the morning.
0: I don't remember seeing you, so I imagine it worked well.
2: So I succeeded. Hooray. Okay. Yes. I'm sure that didn't... Read come out quite the way
0: it did. Who knows? It came out exactly how it was intended.
2: I was sneaking out of John's hotel room early in the morning.
0: But yes, we have some letters of comments. And we have a variety of letters of comment on, on quite old episodes of Octothorpe. So we travel back in time to the 20th of August, where a man called Christopher J. Garcia sent us a lock about Octothorpe episode 64 and said that the transition from 32-bit Octothorpe to Octothorpe 64 will lead to confusion, but ultimately you'll adjust. So I'm glad, the listenership, that Chris has confidence in you uh, and let us know how that transition has been going. He also proposes an alternative to the Briarly competence theory, and his alternative is the Garcia rule of voting thing. It doesn't matter why you vote for a thing. It's concise. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of provisos. There's There's relatively few subsections. Yeah, it's a very Garcia approach.
2: It is, although he does then go on to tell us a little bit about some of his Hugo votes and why he's voting for them. So he is undermining his own voting rule.
0: And he does note there are exceptions and notes the dirtbag incursion of 2014 to 2016, which is fair. It's a good exception. We also got some comments on the fact that Alison referred to Star Wars Lower Decks Um, I was going to make that the episode title, but relented uh, in the face of Alison looking sad when I said I was going to do that. Um, But I did leave it in. And so everyone wrote in to say that Alison had done that. And yes, it it was very funny. We did notice at the time. We didn't correct her. We are bad people. Sorry, Alison.
1: I didn't want to. Do have Star Wars Lower Decks as the episode title because I had done us as Star Wars characters the previous episode, and I've just realised, oh shit, I could have just done a commemorative plate with the picture from the previous episode as the middle of the plate, and that would have saved me about ten thousand hours. And oh god!
2: And in then the nature of time saving hacks, I do expect every uh, piece of episode artwork from now on to be a commemorative plate of some kind or other.
1: Yeah, because I, I can do a commemorative plate really quickly now because the way I did the <laughs> commemorative plate cover was to generate a compl- commemorative plate-making um, macro for Photoshop. So
0: We got some letters of comment on episode 65, Action Castle 2, but unfortunately I didn't understand any of them because you all used the wrong verbs.
1: It's fair to say that some of our
0: listeners um did not particularly like
1: the Action Castle episode and at least one said that it gave them Infocom flashbacks. So sorry about that if that's you. Remember to keep the junk
0: mail. You'll need it later. We got some comments on episode 66 on Facebook. Haven't had any emails yet, um, but I'm sure we will. Um, But we got Facebook comments and a lot of people liked the picture of the three of us at the Hugo's listener liz batty said that my hair was very annoying sorry about that liz and laurie anderson from hugo girl posted to say how did we fail to record even one second of friendship audio and that is that is a good point we did not record any hugo girl friendship audio it's very sad but there are some photos of us and hugo girl people um hanging out which was very good but there will be in the future, maybe at some point when we come to DragonCon next year. We're all going to DragonCon. You heard it here first, including Alison and Liz, who didn't know. Liz continues to knit, and Alison is agape.
1: I am more likely to go to DragonCon than Chengdu next year, but I am probably more likely to go to Winnipeg than either. When is Winnipeg? Can you go like Winnipeg and DragonCon on consecutive weekends and die?
0: Pemicon is the twentieth to the twenty-third of July, and DragonCon is Labor Day weekend, so there is you couldn't.
1: So that's not happening then. I'm not going to any of these conventions. It would be lovely, but it's not going to happen. I'm going to Australia and New Zealand. Oh, For my guff trip.
0: Now I have looked it up, uh, what I could do is go to Winnipeg and then the weekend after go to Gen Con. Interesting.
1: Oh, that sounds like an amazing thing to do.
2: I thought you had no more money ever.
0: Well, I might have some more money by then. I might be able to save up.
2: Yeah, we know what you're going to spend it on, John. <laughs>
0: Oh, Chicago was expensive. It was great, but it was not cheap. Yeah, let's talk about Chicago. Chicago is great. It's very tall. Alison, how did you find it? (laughs) It was proportionally more taller than it was uh, for me or Liz, for you.
1: It's tall, but it's also quite kind of big. It's got a lot of space. It has a river and it also has a lake, but the lake is quite big. So it feels like a sea. Um, I think the lake is as big as the
0: Netherlands. So that's quite big. Can you put that in terms of like double-decker buses or whales?
1: I think you could fit a lot of... Oh, no, the lake is probably bigger than whales because
2: it's about as big as the Netherlands. It's big. It's really big. Uh, you may think it's a long way just going down to the shops, but that's just peanuts compared to Lake Michigan.
0: <laughs> Indeed.
2: Chicago's pretty big and pretty tall. It's got a lot of skyscrapers. Some of
1: them are very interesting. And I discovered that I love the work of Bertrand Goldberg and wish there were more of it in Chicago. He has two skyscrapers, well, one pair and one extra on the tour, and they're the, they're the best things on the entire tour.
2: You may have to explain what tour, yes, what tour are you referring to here, Alison?
1: Yeah, we went on an architectural boat trip of Chicago, where our person taking us, giving us the guide, was a realtor. So she kept explaining whether the building was rental or office or condominiums or whatever and also she talked an enormous amount about corner offices so that
0: was a bit weird but
1: otherwise it was a very interesting to her
0: so to explain the tour in a more general level <laughs> rather than a very specific grope with the tour before explaining what the tour was. It was a boat tour, and we went up and down the river in Chicago, and a very nice lady pointed out buildings and told us about the buildings, and it was good. And she explained who had done the buildings, and then also uh, got quite into the weeds in some aspects. But it was very interesting, and I was glad to have done it at the start, because it meant when I was later walking around Chicago and I saw these buildings from the bottom of the buildings, I was like, whoa, that's a tall building. And there was also other art in Chicago. Uh, there was the Art Institute. I saw Nighthawks, uh, which was amazing. And I also did not see the Tiffany Dome, but that was fine because I'd been to the Tiffany Museum. Weirdly, the Tiffany Museum is in Winter Park near Orlando in Florida, uh, given that a lot of Tiffany's work was Chicago-based. There is surprisingly little of it in Chicago. And if you want to see it, you, you need to go to Florida for some reason. I also had, I did not, I had a fine hot dog. didn't have a great hot dog. I had a fine hot dog.
1: I had a couple of pretty good hot dogs. I don't know whether I had kind of the the canonical
0: Chicago hot dog. Liz, what were your cultural highlights of Chicago?
2: Uh, Well, I don't eat hot dogs, but I did have a couple of deep pan pizzas. That was pretty good. Um, Yeah, I just love Chicago as a city. Uh, The weather when we were there, just before the con, was perfect in that it was sunny and bright, and warm but not too hot so I got one of the Chicago uh, municipal e-bikes and biked it uh, along the lakeshore and up to the zoo which is very nice Uh, and e-bikes really sort out any pesky hills on the way not really hills but inclines Um, yeah it's just a really lovely place to go and hang around it has nice parks it has these really impressive skyscrapers you know a bit about the skyscrapers because ladies told you about how much of the architecture appears to depend on a Either having too many corner offices or not having enough corner offices. It seems to be a very big influence on how the architecture was done. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to actually live in Chicago because I only really sort of went around the central bits. But it is a thoroughly nice place to spend a week full of exciting cultural opportunities and good food. I hung out quite a bit with Nigel Rowe, who lives quite close to the centre
1: of Chicago, and he was extremely um enthusiastic about living in chicago he thinks it's a fantastic place to live which is why he lives there given that he's from new zealand um we also we went down to the museum quarter and we went to the older, older planetarium which is the oldest planetarium in north america in common with most planetaria it has had its planetarium mechanism removed because they're completely obsolete we also looked at a lot of gardens, we went to the beach, we did not go swimming because there were massive signs saying no swimming everywhere, which I now understand are just kind of performative signs and you're actually fine to swim. You just, they really should say, do not swim and then try to sue the city about it. As Liz said, the weather in Chicago is often very difficult, both in summer and in winter, but um, when we were there, it was extremely lovely the whole time, pretty well, it was, except when we were at breakfast. Hmm. We did get very soaked one day and I was wearing my Glasgow t-shirt ready for the 10 o'clock site selection announcement that Glasgow had won the Worldcon and by the time I'd returned to the hotel a walk of about five minutes from the restaurant I could no longer wear that t-shirt for two days while it out, <laughs>
0: dried out. But one of the other big advantages of Chicago was that there was a Worldcon there.
1: It was pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah went to a Worldcon. So this is Alison, this is your first American Worldcon since...
1: It is my first US Worldcon since 1993, though we did go to anticipation in 2009.
0: Liz, this was your first American convention since Tricon 7?
2: No, nope, I went to mid in 2016.
0: Oh, of course you did. You went with Anna. Mm. Yes. Taft delegate Anna Raftery also went to mid And this was my first American Worldcon since San Jose in 2018. Con Francisco was the first convention that Hispania went to when she was uh new, and that was the nineteen ninety-three WorldCon. It's the only time the WorldCon will ever be in downtown San Francisco, uh, and so I really regret I wasn't old enough to go, but um but yes, it sounds like it would have been an amazing convention.
1: I don't think I quite understood properly how to do world cons in nineteen ninety three when I was younger than any of the Octathorpe team are now. But, I mean, I did. I was filking a lot in those days.
0: Disgusting.
1: If you were a filker, then your experience of Wilcon is very different from if you are a a drinker.
0: Alison was running the Fanzine Lounge, uh, Liz was doing Prog Ops, and I wasn't doing anything. Often, Liz was doing spreadsheets, I think.
2: Uh, There was some spreadsheeting, but basically because I had done program work in the run up to the con, I already had a login for the program database and the ability to work the program database. Um, So there was some like, you know, people email you say, oh, I can't do this panel. You make changes, you edit things, you make sure it ends up in the online schedule. And since there was not really a printed schedule, um, you know, everyone was using the online one, which could be updated a couple of times a day. That was good. But yeah, fundamentally, it was one of those job where you basically sit and type in a windowless room for a couple of hours. So it's not like an actual job. We probably should say if you were going to
1: criticize, well, things that I liked a lot about Shikon, several of my friends have been calling it Shikon, which has started to worry me. It's definitely Shikon, right?
0: I had this argument with Stephen Silver in Reno in 2011 and successfully wound him right up. (laughs) What, you called it Shikon? Well, it's Chicago, so it must be Chicon. All
1: oh, right, fair enough. The Hyatt Regency is a single massive hotel in two parts, but it means that the entire convention is all on one site, and it is, in, it is bang in the centre of town. It's more in the bit of Chicago you want to be in if you're on holiday. So it's very compact as these things go. It's exactly the right size for a Worldcon, and I think that's a big benefit of the convention. Unfortunately, it doesn't have terribly good Wi-Fi or internet access. Those of us who were roaming from America or in, from Britain were in a good state because if you're on roaming, then your, your phone automatically grabs the best signal as a result of which we did mostly get signal throughout. But lots of people who've been told you can only use the online program then didn't have any internet access all weekend. So, so that, was, that was kind of a comedy moment.
2: I, don't know, I, mean, I mean, I could only roam to certain networks because of the way you know, my phone is set up. But I had no problems with either Wi-Fi or the 3G.
0: The Wi-Fi in the dealer's room and the exhibits hall was the conference Wi-Fi you had to pay for instead of the free Wi-Fi, which was vaguely annoying. But like, I had mobile signal down there, so I wasn't really bothered. Because Chicon went quite hard on not having a lot of paper around, which I really applaud. And I think they thought they were going to have free Wi-Fi down in the conference bit of the convention. Oh, they definitely did. And then the Hyatt did not provide that. And I think that was a sticking point for anyone who is less technologically minded than the three of us. And I think I could see that being a problem. But equally, like, hopefully it's something that next time, next time there is a convention in Chicago, which presumably will be 2032, the convention committee will be like, last time you did this, and next time you absolutely cannot do this. And hopefully it will get um, sort of shaken out then.
1: It did feel like a very nickel and diming thing for this hotel, which must have made an absolute, honest to goodness fortune that weekend.
2: I mean, you say that, but i th- I think the problem is that you know, right now is an incredibly bad time for anyone from the UK to be paying for things in dollars. Because when I looked at the hotel rates, I thought, oh, the hotel rates are on the high side. I'll see if anywhere else in Chicago has a better hotel rate, and the answer was no, unless I wanted a bed in a six dorm hostel room, like. I'm sure they were making money but compared to the cost of literally anywhere else in the city it was a reasonably good deal. Yes it, it was probably quite an
1: expensive. The, the dollar is doing quite well at the moment so the pound is doing quite badly at the moment and everything felt quite expensive.
2: Yeah so a lot of it was a shock to basically be thinking well this is basically one-to-one but I think the prices seem reasonable for what you get which is a big fancy hotel in the middle of a major city although it does it is sorely in need of renovating. And I think they compare favorably with things like the cost of hotel rooms near, say, the Dublin or Helsinki World
0: Cons. Oh, I mean, certainly, I feel less poor than I did after Helsinki. Jesus, Christ. and Dublin. Oh my goodness! Like, no, I mean, we're talking relatively, but European World Cons, and actually not Lundcon so much. Luncon had like quite a good range of relatively reasonable housing nearby, but Dublin, especially, yowser. That wasn't Dublin 2019's fault. Like, I have friends who live in Dublin and they're like, no, the housing situation here is just mad and there's nothing you could do about it. But, like, because I looked at taking a fellowship in Dublin and one of the things that made me think maybe I'll stay in England was because I was trying to look at, like, where I would live. And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't understand. But moving away from how expensive Chicago is.
1: One of the things I really liked about Chicon is that I've met an enormous number of people um, online at conventions and at hybrid and at virtual and hybrid conventions and through the internet over the last two and a half years and I met a lot of those people for the first time at ChiCon in person and that was incredibly nice and I think it gave me some sense of what some of the feeling of the earlier science fiction conventions must have been like that that um, people were just getting a chance to meet somebody who they'd met and corresponded with um, for years, but had never actually got to meet. And, and Shaikon really gave me a lot of that feeling. And I really, really enjoyed
0: that. We were all on program items. I was on a few program items. Um, I was on a couple of kind of more fanishly minded program items um, about kind of running conventions and podcasts and stuff. Um, but I was on a panel starring Paulina Barron and eric choi and bill higgins and mary robinette Cowell as the moderator on living in space which was really good mary robinette's moderation style is amazing i don't think i've ever been on a panel as well moderated as that panel she did a very good job of explaining to us all how she was going to do it and then it worked really well and she does the thing where, at the start of the panel, she asks people for the questions they have, and then she uh guides the discussion of the panel to answer all the questions the audience came to have answered. I think that probably works better if you're a hugo award winning novelist and your panels are busy to the point where you get enough questions that you can structure a panel off of them um but it was a very good way of uh doing it and it meant we covered a wide range of topics and um people asked questions and some of them I had professional expertise in which was interesting and always made me feel weird and the other panelists were fascinating bill higgins works at fermilab and so does radiation shielding but as he noted on the panel I've probably got more of a relevant view of that because obviously at Fermilab, their approach to radiation shielding is just put it underground, it'll be fine. And that is harder to do in space because there's no ground. I did point out on the moon, you can use the ground again. So maybe the solution is definitely moon bases. But yes, it was really good. And um, I was on a different panel about Star Wars and I like Star Wars, but we'll come to that later, listeners, foreshadowing. I wasn't on any virtual panels. They were all in person. I don't know if any of them were streamed. The mirror one it was was because they were taking questions from the stream. So that must be on um, the internet somewhere for people to watch back. Because I think you can watch the panel items back now, but I don't know how long for.
1: Yeah, you've got a month. And I'm assuming that's a month from the end of the convention, but it might be a month from the beginning of the convention, in which case you have about two days after this episode drops to watch anything you missed from Shikon.
0: What were you on, Alison and Liz?
1: I was on two Airmeet panels, and the first one I allowed myself about 45 minutes to get set up on Airmeet in my hotel room at the Hyatt, and it took me about 54 minutes to get set up. So I was late for my panel um, because Airmeet was quite difficult to configure in a hotel room in a different country, um, it turned out. And it was fine. I mean, I think there was some issues with so i has some huge advantages which is why they use it it's a single it's a kind of one key system you basically let people in and then they're in and you gate them once and that then it's sorted um and it has another huge advantage which is that you as soon as a panel's over it's automatically the recording's there and you can go and look at it and all of that continues to work and i think that's made up for for quite quite a lot of disadvantages for this convention that was was short of people points, particularly short of people on the virtual side, because although people who cannot attend the convention quite like to um, attend virtually, we're not seeing yet the community of people who are prepared to put in a lot of work before the convention for a, for a con they're not going to be at. So I think that's something that we need to think about while we're taking virtual conventions for, uh, or hybrid conventions forward um and so I was on two two virtual conventions one of them was um so how to enjoy your first work on um and it, of course because I knew nothing about Airmeet quite a lot of that was actually about how to enjoy it on Airmeet which wasn't something I knew anything about um and then my other Airmeet was with Christopher J. Garcia but also with Newt shuttlecotter who i don't know and wasn't actually physically at the convention but that was a very good that was somebody who was good to meet and they had some very interesting things to say about about podcasting and communities and building communities so i really enjoyed being on that panel with with chris and newt um and in both the cases
0: would you say it was good to air meet them
1: i mean i like i i guess people know now i i do like hybrid and virtual quite a lot what I also hung out a little bit in the fan spaces on Airmeet. They're not as much as I would have liked because it turned out I was quite busy hanging out in the fan spaces at the physical convention. Um, so if I saw you in Airmeet, that was great. And I'm sorry I didn't get to see more of you, but there'll be other virtual or hybrid conventions that I am at in the future, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I did a panel on con-running in the age of COVID-19, which was in fact like broadcast on Airmeet as one of the sort of, uh, live panels broadcast into the AirMeet. But I didn't actually do anything solely on AirMeet. And I wonder if there are a lot of people who said, oh, yeah, I'm fine to do, you know, virtual panels. I'll be at the con in person. And then we're like, oh, actually, this is quite a lot more work to set up. And it would have been a lot easier if I was at home and maybe that was a mistake. And you need a bit more kind of like, if you are doing a virtual panel from the con, you need to know that you kind of need to have the equipment to do it to yourself. This is not like a hybrid panel where, you know, we'll have some people are virtual and some people in a room. It is, you're effectively completely virtual.
1: I learned on the Saturday before the convention um, that I would need to take my laptop with me if I wanted to do this. And we had a bit of a kind of flutter while we went, can we possibly take my laptop with me? And we did eventually... Conventions. If you if you're having virtual participation or hybrid participation, you need to let people know more than a few days before the convention what tools they need to access your virtual spaces. I feel like I've got this giant clockwork key in my back, and I can just wound me up again.
2: like you're right. There. The big advantage of airME, I think, is that it could probably run with kind of fewer volunteers because, for all this, actually, you could just do it on like Zooms and Discords if you have. Fifteen simultaneous Zoom feeds running for a convention—that is a lot to manage. And the fact that Airmeet could kind of have this and it would automatically, you know, bring in rooms and things. Just having enough people to kind of know what's supposed to be going on in what room at what time is is a lot. So I think sometimes we forget that things that scale to like three streams do not scale to a Worldcon size thing. Especially they were trying to have a full thing of virtual readings and virtual table talks and everything. Yeah, I think maybe need to be clearer. But I think also. They suffered from a lack of people really being, setting up Emmy in advance. And I know there was a guide on how to get onto to AMI, but I mean, I wasn't planning to use it for any panels, so I didn't really look at it in detail. I just basically knew I wasn't going to be able to do that because I'm a, pan- a convention person. I did watch a few panels on Emmy, and it was totally fine. It, I didn't have any problems with it, but I think that was just me. Other people had more problems.
0: We watched the opening ceremony in our room while uh, drinking beers and eating cold pizza.
2: Yeah, but that wasn't actually on Airmeet because what they did was they had uh, a stream of that direct to YouTube. So I put the YouTube stream on the TV.
0: When I went down and it was extremely busy and hadn't started yet. So I retreated and came back up to the room and found that it had started and my room was quite a lot less busy and had my wife in it. So um, hurrah. That was quite good.
2: That else also had me in
0: um, to ruin the moment. I didn't ruin the moment. <laughs> Liz was good. She was a good roommate. I mean, basically, listeners, I spent quite a long time with Liz uh, in the States. Um, again, we'll come on to that later, foreshadowing.
1: I have one more thought about my in-person events. I was on about half a dozen, mostly... Um... Mostly fan fan and fan related, and the kind of fan con, fanzine and fan history and fan content stuff was all pretty well attended, actually. These were in rooms that would seat about fifty to a hundred people and they were you know, they weren't full but they weren't empty either. It was fine. Um I was on one con running panel about organizing a good fan lounge, and that was very badly attended, and I heard several other people on con running panels saying yeah. that Conrunning panels were terribly attended, and I wonder whether the Worldcon should be putting a little bit less effort into Conrunning panels, because none of the Conrunners have any time at a Worldcon to go to programmes.
2: I did two Conrunning running fanish panels. One was Conrunning, one was about what I learned from fandom, and the Conrunning one was not particularly well attended, despite having what I thought would be reasonably well-known panellists on. I mean, not me, but the other ones. Um, I thought there would be bigger draws.
0: I was on. I was on building fandom events: myths versus reality. It was me, Vince Doherty, Michael Wallace, who was the moderator, Kathy Green, and Brenda Noiseau. We were initially not outnumbered by the audience, and that did change by the end with some latecomers. But Vince said that one of the con running panels he'd been on earlier in the weekend there was literally mm, there was one person in the audience. The thing is, if you're a con runner and you're at WorldCon, you're probably especially because this panel was opposite the business meeting. And so there's an element here that a lot of the con runners who are going to Worldcon might might either be running dealer room, running fan tables in the dealer's room for the conventions they're running, or be at the business meeting trying to affect how the conventions they run will be run in the future, and so may not be at the con running panels. It also might be the case that a lot of the con-running panels at World Con seemed like quite con-running 101 y They weren't really going into like they all seemed quite surface-level topics. I don't know if that's fair, but like I do wonder whether the con runners at a World Con probably don't need that 101 tack, and the people coming to a World Con who have never run a convention before might not be going to uh those panels. And I don't know. And it might just be that it was bad at Chicago, but it will be great at Winnipeg and Chengdu, like because. It might just be a quirk of who was there it's hard, it's really hard, but yeah they um I don't get the impression it was well attended as a as a sort of concept, the con running uh, material.
2: I thought there were some quite interesting, I mean just to push back, so I thought there were some quite interesting con running panels you know there's one about mental health and con running which i think is a good a good thing to be discussing about how you take care of your con runners there was one about how we you know support uh convention attendees from across the globe and running conventions in in uh you know places where maybe they don't have great access for virtual conferences and, and things like that so i think there were a few and then there were also some like more 101 panels yeah uh, it's really hard to tell who's going to actually attend a panel
1: the other thing that very surprised me about the programme, coming from an eastercon type background, is that those rooms that seat 50 to 100 people, they were mostly not miked. So I was in, most of my items were in unmiked rooms. And there's, it's been ages, it's been a decade since we did this in, in Britain for the Eastercon. And, and even smaller conventions that I've run, we've miked all of our programme spaces. I think we get a lot of criticism if we asked panels to run in unmiked rooms even quite small rooms these days so I don't know if British fans are deafer on average than US fans or if this is just a cultural thing that just hasn't quite got there yet this is this also leads to fewer program streams because obviously you're then constrained by the number of the number of rooms you can put a, a, a tech setup into
2: I mean, I have no inside information on this, but I mean, I suspect it could have just been budget issues. You don't quite have the budget to to do something and everything. But you also, for this con, wanted to run lots of program streams because you did not really want overflowing program rooms. You ideally wanted people to have a bit more space to spread out. I think people do not want to cram themselves back into program rooms yet. So they had the kind of extra dilemma there of, you know, fewer attendees than you would expect for a Chicago Worldcon. Um but not wanting to put them into kind of a smaller space. And that is a big issue.
0: On the one hand, I know that by all reports, Tricon had troubles with their budget, which must have been very difficult. But I do think that stuff like making sure program rooms are mic'd and also stuff like even the big program rooms didn't have a mic per program participant. So a lot of the time we were sort of sitting quite closely to each other so we could both use the same mic. And I don't know how much it costs to my cup of room. Full disclosure, no idea. Although I appreciate there are many reasons why it might have been difficult. I do I do wish it had been better done, especially because we're all wearing masks. And so um, the inability to hear people uh, is worse, as anyone who's listened to the last episode of Octop will have heard the, the masks muffle you uh, slightly, which is, you know, problematic.
1: Also, you can't lip read if people are- wearing masks which even people with full hearing do lip read all of the time if they
0: can there were parties every night glasgow ran a party i think every night except the first night was technically a dublin party with glasgow input and they didn't run one on like the third night maybe but they run one every other night yeah they didn't run one on the site selection night And there was like other parties, there was a party with fantastic margaritas, Um, there was the Manticorans who were running parties, there were just lots of parties. I liked the parties.
1: I should shout out the FANAC and Duff 50th anniversary party, which was a jolly good party, which did not have wild mixed drinks, but did have quite nice beer, and also a lot of very civilised people sitting around and chatting. I quite liked the parties. I don't like the parties where they're crowded and noisy and you can't sit down and the conversations are essentially very superficial. So I much prefer what I'd like is the situation that we once had in the UK where you sit in the bar in the earlier part of the evening and then you have room parties in the later part of the evening. I found the early part of the parties to be rather tiresome, but once they start to thin out, they are pretty good. But then you've discovered that it's the same. It turns out that the set of drunken reprobates in room parties at two o'clock in the morning, is there's a big overlap every time, right? So you get to know all these people if you do enough of it. And some of them are the same ones who would be around the bar very late at night at a UK convention, Um, unsurprisingly.
2: Yeah, I think I just don't like the... World con party make up as much as definitely John does and possibly Alison in that, you know, if the parties are great, it's great. The Glasgow parties and the Dublin thank you party were great. But a lot of the time it's sort of you wandering into a hotel room with a few people and, you know, they've done their best to, you know, put some decorations up and they'll give you a, a thimble full of drink or maybe even a margarita. Oh, I didn't get the margarita, i gone to bed. And you have some more conversations, then you go to kind of another hotel room with some decorations up have a small drink you know it just i'd much rather have like a kind of bar culture where you have like one main social space where you can float about and chat to different people and yeah that appeals to me much more than kind of going to lots of random rooms and so i just kind of just kept going back to the dublin party not the and the glasgow parties because i knew people in there that i wanted to talk to like i would if they were in the bar
0: so the thing i don't like about the Eastercon bar culture is that Everyone sits down and then that is it for the night. If you want to have a varied night, you have to move around the bar. And at the parties, because they're all parties, people move. And so you have different groups of people at different points of the night. So it actually feels varied. Whereas like at an Easter con, like often I'll be at midnight and I'll be like, I could stay here for the next two hours talking to these people and it would be more of the same. Or I can go to bed. And that is, I never have that thought at a Worldcon ever. Well, not an American world comp. Um, so I do quite like that aspect of the social scene. I know Hispania very much values that aspect. It's one of the things she finds she misses most about the US scene is not having that sense of, like, movement.
1: Chicon might have been a little bit... So there was at least one party that I was invited to that only got started at midnight, and I didn't know about because I wasn't reading the relevant person's Facebook page during the convention. And there may have be more of that, so there may have been more parties, because there weren't that many parties compa- I mean the parties the parties at um anticipation
2: were quite good.
0: There were less parties than there were at tricon seven.
2: there's a, There's a pandemic aren't this is probably a you know significant disincentive to partying that's for most the, people. Yes, that's the other thing is that the the way I have fun at
1: parties also turns out to not probably be very COVID safe, so there's that.
2: Yeah, I think it sounds like I move around EasterCon bars a lot more. And I feel like a lot more, I see a lot more of the convention there throughout the day and the evening, whereas I felt there were huge numbers of people at Shycon that I didn't see because they weren't at the parties and then I don't know where they are. And yeah, I think just I feel more uncomfortable kind of randomly wandering around hotel rooms, seeing what drinks they've got and uh, awkwardly shuffling out when I don't know anyone.
1: Yeah, so I had to awkwardly shuffle out from one party that I was expecting to be quite a good party because I was on my own at that point And I was like, oh, I'm perfectly happy to meet people on my own. But in fact, it turned out to be a room full of people that I had almost zero interest in conversing with. So, you know, probably would have been better in a kind of group of three or four, which I was for some of the time. So.
0: Well, I think you have to be... I definitely find that if I'm in a party, I'm not enjoying it, I'm like, I'm a go. I don't think that's a problem but I do think you have to be willing to be like, oh no, this is terrible, I'm going to leave now and not worry about the optics very much, because no one's going to remember you.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, you could, you could definitely do that. I mean, I don't think anyone cares. You know, they don't particularly want people in their party not having a good time, so that's okay.
2: Yeah, but I could have been in a nice bar for all this time I spent wandering around trying to find the good party.
0: My primary motivator with the parties is that it feels different every night, and it feels like there are different spaces which I enjoy. I don't And like, especially on the first night where there was like the random party being thrown by the two chaps that had the throbbing box in their room with the margaritas. That was a great party because that was my favourite party of the weekend. It was
1: a really interesting group of people, several of whom I didn't know and many of whom I then met over again over the weekend because they were people who, they were the sort of people who were drinking margaritas at midnight at two o'clock in the morning, you know. So I did meet some of them again and they made margaritas with a beer in them. It was kind of weird, but it was
0: good. But it was very nice.
2: Oh, I was thinking we we get the margarita when you tip beer in the beer and stuff it.
0: No, they were making the beer was part of like the margarita mix. It was like a sour beer, okay. and they were using it
1: as part of the base of the margarita. The margaritas were probably
0: and they tasted like margaritas. They tasted like good margaritas, but they were like a beer based recipe. It was it was impressive. And then there was the Hugo's.
2: Yes, we went to Hugo's.
0: Oh yes, speaking of amazing parties the hugo award ceremony was on sunday there was a pre-award reception uh where we all went and we had our photos taken and we had a drink and we could have paid nine dollars for extra drink but we decided not to and then we went into the hugo award ceremony itself and then afterwards there was another reception yeah with cake um And my mother told me that if I can't say anything nice, I shouldn't say anything at all. So let's talk about the pre-award reception and the awards themselves. So the pre-award reception was good. There's photos of us. Hopefully they come out at some point. I haven't seen any of the photos from that bit come out yet. I've seen lots of photos of people having taken photos of people having their photo taken. But I haven't seen any of the photos that were taken.
1: Yeah, we haven't seen any of the official photos. But I want to do a shout out to Castilla, who kathy bond roped into being hugo award finalist liaison and had never actually been to a WorldCon before and they were great the entire beforehand and through the weekend and is now on the hugo finalist discords going i am going to track down those photos for you guys so hopefully they will track down the photos for us
0: i enjoyed the hugos it was good i re-met brendan Noiseau, who I was on a panel with, uh, but because we were both wearing our glad rags and had our hair done, uh, neither of us res- recognized the other until we were exchanging details. And she was like, "I already follow you on Twitter," and I was like, "I wonder why that is." And it turned out it was because we'd been on a panel together.
2: What about it, John? You hadn't, you hadn't had your hair did? Your hair just kind of miraculously fell into awesomeness I... somehow.
0: I put hairspray in it, Liz. All right, did you? Yeah, that counts. It does. I put, the, I put the hairband in, I leave it there for two minutes so my hair goes sticky up, and then I take the hairband out and I hairspray it so it stays, and then I'm done. Sarah Felix made me a tiara
1: that took my Hugo pin as part of the decoration in my tiara and matched the colouring and style of my dress and also my necklace and was absolutely amazing. Thank you, Sarah. It's, it's unbelievable. I'm so thrilled.
2: I bought a necklace for Hugos in the art show, basically on the morning of the Hugos, and it just felt very kind of serendipitous that um, Vanessa had a necklace in the art show, which was a perfect match for my dress. So thank you very much, Vanessa, for making such lovely art. So I would like to give a shout out to Tammy Coxon, who had the thankless task of trying to wrangle each Hugo category, get all the finalists into one place so you can take a photo of all of them, which is basically almost impossible Um because it's hard to wrangle a bunch of people at the best of times, and not when they're extremely nervous and trying to drink their one $9 beer and, you know, not disrupt their mask.
1: And networking with people who might be important for their professional career or just that they've always wanted to meet, furiously.
2: I I failed to meet the people that I'd always wanted to meet because I was too busy eating.
0: (laughs) And that, that is living your best life, Liz.
1: The people I'd always wanted to meet turned out to be dumplings. They were
0: bow.
2: There were people. The people I wanted to meet, and by the time I realised that I'd had a nice time, like chatting and eating dumplings for an hour, I had not left myself any time to actually meet them. Especially when I, you know, went to the loo and got back and discovered that we were now all standing around for some reason. So we got good seats in the already reserved seating area. Well, and
0: in in the in the old days at uh, um, Helsinki and San Jose. Um, and dublin the time you met the people you had always wanted to meet was uh, at the party after the hugos but the problem was that the party after the hugos was put on by the very lovely Chengdubid, dubid and it consisted of the food that hadn't been eaten at the pre-awards ceremony plus some bad cake and a single flute of extremely sweet fizzy white wine. And so I ate some cake and had my fizzy white wine and decided, hmm, and then went straight up to the Glasgow party, which was far better in every single respect.
1: There was about a flute of fizzy white wine per third of finalists as well. Yes. So there weren't, there weren't enough glasses of wine for anything like
0: everyone who was there. It took us a while to realise that what we should have done was all brought a straw and drunk the fizzy white wine Three of us with a straw each uh, and taking a photo, as is the Octthorpe tradition. Uh, unfortunately, we had one each, like reprobates. It basically did not encourage people to stick around after the ceremony and hang out. And that was a very great shame because one of the very good things about the parties at 2017, 18 and 19 was that everyone was hanging out afterwards. And so you had time to get drunk enough to go up to David Diggs and be like, you're really good, Uh, which I'm sure was less fun for David Diggs than it was for everyone else. But like, you know,
1: I think I did that at Helsinki and I just did it in the
0: bar. Oh, yeah, that also works.
2: I mean, I think you've been spoiled by going to three losers parties that had a large budget then because the losers party was pretty much the same as like the official Helsinki run losers party in 2016, which is, you know, with the best will in the world, they could not compare with someone hiring an offsite venue and putting a lot of money into it. And I mean, what I've said is the downside of there being the fancy offsite losers party is it meant that anyone who didn't get nominated for Hugo could not hang out with anyone who was nominated for Hugo yeah, because basically for those years the people who won and the losers would all kind of go off to that party and you didn't really see them so it was really nice to be able to go up to Glasgow party and then just hang out with you know a bunch of people who were just at the con.
0: No I mean that is fair but I had done that for the previous three nights so there is an element where I was like oh you know nice party would have been good.
1: Uh, I went to better budgeted hugo losers parties in 2005 and in 2014 and um and they weren't they still weren't the george rr martin huge budget kind but they were they were significantly better budgeted than than this one was
2: do you mean the one in 2014 or the one run by 2014
1: the one in 2014 which was the spican one which we did think was pretty bad at the time but it did go on quite a lot longer than
2: this one did yeah but you're miles mile the way
0: yeah because the chengdu one i think even the people like us who are on the on the kind of low end of the hugo prestige scale uh had left after half an hour but i remember being at the one in reno in 2011 and that one went for like an hour and a half, two hours? Because you, I mean, like, there was a bar and you got a couple of free drinks afterwards. And so people did stick around. And it, and so, like, obviously the ones run by George R.R. Martin were fantastic and there was lots of money spent. But I do think that there is a, like, the, the Chengdu one didn't have a bar. Yeah. What? Like, have someone selling drinks. I'm not saying it has to be a million pound party thrown by a millionaire for all his mates that's, like, in the ritziest place in the city. But I do think it needs to be more than some sad cake.
2: I mean, I think you also have to take into account that there are probably twice as many people invited to the Hugo Losers party than there were in 2014 or 2005.
0: Oh, maybe, but you also have to take into account that do have an awful lot of US dollars that they cannot spend. And so, realistically speaking...
2: It's true, they could have spent all the US dollars. They could have had a few beers, yes.
0: Glasgow did a consistently better job every night.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, they ran a less good party (laughs) than the 50th anniversary of Duff and FANAC party, okay?
2: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, they should probably, like, there's got to be an in-between where, you know, we know we can't have, you know, really super fancy parties, but just something with a bit more, gets a bit more socialisation going, rather than I'm going to drink my one glass of wine and then uh, run away.
1: Yeah, you do need to put drink into your Hugo finalists after the ceremony, because they, they're they going to need... Sorry, we're all sounding like alcoholics here. Can I skip back to the Hugo rehearsal now? Because I forgot to mention it. Yeah, go on. So the first is that it was our one chance to hold a
2: Hugo. We should have made a bit more
1: of that and taken some photos. We, we got some photos with the.
2: Well, also, two of us didn't hold Hugos.
0: I held a Hugo at the Glasgow party after the Hugos.
2: As did I. And I've got photos
0: Because the Dune Hugo was passed around to everyone who wanted to touch it.
2: I have photos of John with the Dune Hugo, uh, which are available for a very low price. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the cover art for this episode? No, no. You you can cut that if that is too much, but you know.
0: (laughs) Nope. I take solace and joy from that.
1: So I sat down next to a man and started making at the rehearsal and started making kind of pleasant conversation as you do. And he was wearing a mask and I was wearing a mask. It wasn't the brightest room. And after some time, I realised it was Charlie Stross who I have known for 30, 30 years.
0: Yes, I did see that. And I was like, I recognised it was Charlie Stross.
2: Yeah, I recognised him from behind as being Charlie Stross.
0: <laughs> I probably would have recognised him from behind, right? Yeah, well, because, and I don't know if you know this, Alison, Charlie Stross looks a lot like Charlie Stross, like a lot like Charlie Stross, even with a mask on.
1: I might have been a bit strung out, but also he didn't recognise me. And again, we have known each other, you know, we've been to each other's houses, we
0: know each other fairly well. He had a good reason to be strung out. He was up, he was up for a Hugo. (laughs) And his Hugos matter for his publication and like agents. And our Hugo was just a little bit of a laugh.
2: Also, he might, he had a, a good chance of winning a Hugo.
0: And on Hugo. Congratulations to Anna Lee and Charlie Jane for winning Best Fan Cast. Uh, congratulations to Cora Buellet for winning Best Fan Writer. And congratulations to Shauna McGuire and Lee Moyer for winning the other two fan categories. I was glad to see how well represented fandom was across the fan categories. I think it's really great. And a uh, tribute to the Hugos.
2: Uh, for anyone who has not looked at the, the detailed results, which we did approximately one second after the detailed results were made available, which was approximately 10 minutes after they ought to have been. There is a general there is a general thing of people saying, oh, maybe the statistics should not be available immediately because I think some people read them then, then are, you know, assholes to finalists about what is contained in them. But I think if the results had come out any later, uh, Alison would literally have exploded. One of the very few cast-iron
1: memories I have of my first Worldcon, which was 1987, and I wasn't really doing any fan act apart from going to parties then, was leaving the Hugo Awards, which I'd found a bit kind of dull, and the, somebody handing me the sheet of paper with the long list, darling, and I going, "Oh, but this is good." So it is one of the things that is is very core to my sense of who I am as a fan and what I value about fandom is that piece of paper, or or now electronic link. Though I did manage to get one of the ten pieces of paper that Nicholas had had wickedly <laughs> run off, so that there would be some printed copies.
0: I will say, I think, I think I would be fine with it coming out the next morning, in general. Uh, but yes, I do like it. And it's because,
1: it, it's because it's kind of, when I was a baby fan, it was kind of the fact that the log list comes out instantly was imprinted on my hindbrain, and I now follow it around like a baby duck.
0: Yep. You often strike me as a baby duck, because uh, you're quite a lot smaller than me, and you've got a very pronounced bill.
2: <laughs>
0: right, should we do picks?
2: No, because I'm still going to tell people where we came in the Hugos.
0: Oh, yeah. Tell people where we came in the Hugos, Liz. The
2: whole point of me bringing that up was to say, have you analysed the stats,
1: Liz? You're going to do a statistical research and charts, maybe.
2: No, because every time you say you're going to do us charts, I'm less likely to make you charts. Because <laughs> Alison was like, you're going to make us charts, right? Like 10 minutes after the Hugos. And so now every time Alison reminds me, I'm like, well, I'm that Pingu off. Well, now I'm not doing it. But we came fifth. So thank you very much, very much, everyone who voted for us. Um, yes, we managed to come fifth by one single vote, which is uh, quite exciting.
1: Because otherwise we'd have been dead flat last.
2: And we did also get uh, 46 nominations. So even though we voted to ratify and, and keep EPH, we actually didn't hear this year to get on the ballot. So that was very nice to see. Yes. Thank you, everyone. I will do more Hugo. I will do more Hugo stats nerdery in the future at some point.
0: I would also like to say thank you to everyone who voted in the fan categories because they were all awarded, and that was great.
2: Uh, And congratulations to Hugo Girl, our uh, bestest friends now, who were third. Yes. Because we're basically like, well, if we can't win, maybe Hugo Girl will win. Um, That seems a bit ungrateful now, because neither of us did, but yes. Yeah, so it was
1: good. Did we mention how much fun we had hanging out with the Hugo girl people? It was very good. Especially I hung out with Hayley on her last night all the way till 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning when she had to go and catch her plane. And that was really good. There are not photographs. That was at the Glasgow party. See, that's what you should have done on your last night. Instead of sneaking out of John's room at 5 o'clock in the morning, Liz, you should have potted until 5 o'clock in the morning.
2: Um, We went for ice cream.
0: Yeah, no, you're conflating Haley's last night and Liz's last night were different last night. So, Liz...
2: There were, no, there were no parties on that night, apart from I guess I could have, you know, tried to sneak into the old farts party at 4am. No. Oh, I should have
1: gone to the old farts, actually, if that was that night. I was asleep.
2: I was asleep as well, because I was about to spend 32 hours returning home. And so I thought maybe, you know, six hours sleep would help.
0: I was asleep because... I was going to get on a plane from Chicago to Orlando and go straight back to Star Wars, which is an excellent segue into picks. <laughs>
2: I'm
0: going to talk about Star Wars after you two. So <laughs> do you want to do your picks first?
2: Is this a pick or is this like a special three-hour explanation of why John loves Galaxy Edge?
0: Oh, no. I mean, I did, I've written it all up, Liz, and that will be available to anyone who stays still too long at EasterCon.
2: My my pick this episode is Robert Jackson Bennett's Founders trilogy, which I finished on the plane home from uh, Chicago and uh, left me in the embarrassing situation of having a little cry on a plane because it was that good. Um, so it is a fancy trilogy. I really like Robert Jackson Bennett's previous fancy trilogy, which was nominated for a Hugo for best series uh, in twenty eighteen. This is his follow up. Uh, it's essentially about it's it's a city state which runs on a kind of magic called scribing, which essentially you can you know, the magic system is you write commands onto physical objects and it kind of alters the way they interact with reality. So the first novel is essentially sort of a, a series of heists to try and steal a very powerful artifact from a thief who can look at scribed objects um, and know what's going on. Um, and it all interacts with these merchant houses uh, and they end up stealing this uh, prize artifact. But it's things like, you know, you, you can essentially fly by get, making yourself a gravity rig, which thinks temporarily that gravity is going in the opposite direction and, and things like this. So there's a huge amount of very fun ideas in there. And that's just the first book. But then in the second one, they get more deeply into, okay, so you can basically tell objects to rewrite the laws of reality. What else can you do by rewriting the laws of reality? And it gets really deep into what if you could rewrite the laws of reality surrounding people? And what if you can get really deeply into kind of, you know, rewriting reality itself? I'm not really doing it justice because it is like an entire fantasy trilogy about this.
1: It sounds very interesting.
2: It's kind of a really great idea that doesn't just like do three books using this great idea, but then kind of each book it's building on. it. Say, well, what if I took this and then kind of showed you what my imagination thinks we could do with this. Uh, Plus, it's also got great characters in there. A lot of them get uh, really good character arcs and a really good send-off or payoff at the end. You know, and by the end of it, I'm basically crying over a magical artifact. So, yeah, I will definitely be nominating it for Best Series. I may put the last volume, Locklands, on my Best Novel Ballot, and I think it's... I can recommend everyone read it now because uh, it's finished and it's six Landing.
0: And I read... Bennett's previous trilogy, which was The Divine Cities, uh, because it was nominated for Best Series in 2018. And at the time, I thought it was an incredibly good example of the sort of thing I think should be nominated in that category. Uh, I remember thinking it was amazing. It lost out to Lois McMaster Bujold. I had not realized that that uh, trilogy had wrapped up, but now I do know it has wrapped up. I may have to uh, read that in my pre-Hugo nomination reading next year. Uh, So thank you, Liz. The previous trilogy was amazing. I really, really, really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I would say this is as good and uh, it's kind of recognisably the same, but also very different and maybe interested in some different ideas.
1: So as well as going to the Worldcon, John and Liz also went to Orlando to do Disney things. You might hear a bit more about those in a minute. And I have massive, massive um, FOMO because um, I had checked my bank account before booking my Chicago holiday. And I knew that I could not possibly have added an extra week in Orlando or indeed anything else to the holiday. Um and so I thought, oh, this is... And then they kept going, well, you don't, you, you know, interactive things are amazing and immersives are amazing and and you should do more of them, Alison. And I was like, oh, oh, I should. So what we did was we booked a trip for the family to a place called Phantom Peak, which is an immersive at Canada Water, where for the princely sum of £34, you can run around for an evening in what the one-star reviews say is an overpriced theme bar, And the five-star reviews say is a fantastic cross between a escape room and a bar and a theme park and... uh LARP and I had a fantastic time. Uh, one of the other reviews said we did some of the trails but then we sat in the bar for the rest of the evening while our children ran around and did a load more trails and that's a very, that sounded like quite a good way to experience it because I think they have about 16 trails in total which are all of the form such and such a weird thing has happened. Go and find this person to talk to who will tell you the next stage of your fetch quest and, um, and you do this for a bit and you end up with very sore feet I hear by rings it if you go in a weekday it's 34 pounds and the beer is pretty good and they also have cocktails and we had a splendid time so if you're anywhere near Docklands that's a jolly good night out I would say and we we were put onto it by Fiona Moore and Caroline Mersey and Russell Smith who had all been and you don't have to dress up but we did dress up just the tiniest bit and I think that helps as well and it was a lot of fun it is a sort of steampunk West World themed town organized around one of the old docks. So it uses docklands in quite an interesting way and there's kind of there's a hooker platypus game and a really weird boat ride where Marianne got absolutely soaking wet because they had calculated that three adults could go on this boat ride, but they did not think they would weigh as much as three of us. So it was quite wobbly more wobbly than they thought we got a lot of water in there's a whole backstory it is science fictional because there are, there has been a blimp crash and there is some weird stuff going on in the town and you kind of learn about this through the the setup trails but as well as the setup trails there's quite a lot of meta story as well that's not in any of the trails which is kind of weird so now i want to go back and do a bit more of it and strongly recommend it if you're in the area.
0: I'm very excited uh, at some point to do it. Probably not this month. I assume it's going to be around for a while. I assume it's not a limited time thing. In, well, except for insofar as any business is a limited time thing.
1: But they might go bust because I don't see how they're going to sell any tickets
0: in the winter. Why, why wouldn't they sell tickets in the winter? Because it's outdoors.
1: I mean, it isn't, it's, it's undercover, but it's in a dock. So you're, you're, you're kind of running around the
0: dock. I think I am less worried about being outside in the winter than you.
2: Yeah, but you said you got very wet, right? People won't do that in the winter. You were not supposed to get wet. Marianne got wet on the
1: boat ride because we overbalanced the boat because they should have put two of us on one boat and two of us on the
0: other. But there's no, like, log flumes. Because when you said that, I was, like, imagining a log flume, but I'm now not imagining a log flume.
1: No, it's not like a theme park. It's not like a a theme park. It's much closer to being a, a LARP than it is to being a... Seaport. although there's some kind of infrastructure mostly what you're doing is talking to the inhabitants of the village of the town about their lives and why they're there and what they're doing there and why they came there and where they're going and so on
0: but i was gonna say i think 35 pounds for something with a lot of actors that is quite cheap that is quite cheap it says starting at 34 pounds um but i don't understand what that means
1: yeah, it's thirty four pounds on a weekday, and I think it's about forty nine at the weekend. And they do two; they do two, you're there for five hours, so they do about they do two sittings, daytime one which will be full of children, I'll
0: tell you, and then an evening one which probably won't be. It's only thirty nine pounds at the weekend. I genuinely they should charge more for this.
2: And do they sell you a lot of beer?
0: Yeah, no, and and
1: they sold me two beers, but the beers were six pounds a pint, which I would say, and for four pure, it's a perfectly good brand. I would say six pounds a pint for beer. A, I'd just been in Chicago, (laughs) and B, if you go into a bar in that area of London, you will be paying £5.50 a pint, so it didn't seem ludicrously expensive at all.
2: Yeah, so they're not making bucket loads on their drinks either. They originally had a rather poor food offering that was expensive,
1: but they've improved the food offering, and although we didn't actually eat there, we ate at a There's a food court outside Canada Water Station, and we, we had some food off a van there because we'd been warned. But so we did actually taste the food inside. But we did have Hackney, hackney Gelato. Uh, I have an adorable picture of um, of their sample codes, which have tiny crocheted platypuses in them rather than ice cream.
0: No, I want to go. Uh, I would want to dress up because it is a steampunk world. And the worst thing about that kind of thing is when you've got a lot of people wearing like band t-shirts and jeans and you're like, this does not feel very steampunky. So I would definitely want to at least make the effort to match the aesthetic. I think a lot of these things you you get out what you put in, so like I'd be very up for um doing that. I've never been tempted to go to like a LARP like Empire or anything like that, but I think with this kind of thing where it's like you pay money and do it more as a theatre production tempts me a lot more because I think I would have to put less in to get more out than of a traditional LARP. Yeah, I think one hundred percent.
2: Okay, do your pick, John.
0: My pick.
2: What is your pick, John?
0: So, I went to see Liz for a week, and Liz is great. And my pick is Liz. Hey. So, in 2020, me and my family were going to go to Orlando to go to Walt Disney World, uh, partly to visit uh, Galaxy's Edge and do other things. And obviously, COVID got in the way, and our Virgin Atlantic. Ticket was made into an open ticket that we had to spend by mid 2022 and then we got nominated for a hugo award Ooh! and so long story short i went on a family holiday to orlando and then flew from that family holiday to worldcon to kill two birds with one stone and liz was there as well because liz had some time before worldcon where she was like oh i could do a thing in america and i said i'll go to orlando and liz went i like disney uh, and so liz was in orlando also And so I've got a life hack for jet lag, which is if you get off the plane in Orlando and immediately go and hang out for three hours at a water park with Liz eating Mickey Mouse ice creams, that gets you over jet lag instantly. So if you're ever flying to the States, just contact Liz, ask her to meet you at a water park in America somewhere and feed you ice cream and you'll be right as Wayne. And so we went to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge the next day and it was pretty great. I very much enjoyed it those who have been listening to the podcast for a while may know that i quite like star wars on the plane to america i read the galaxy's edge novel so i was like prepared for galaxy's edge when i arrived and then we went on the first day we went to ogre's cantina which is a star wars cantina in galaxy's edge land and it was so cool and they have like star wars drinks and they have beer flights and they have tiki mugs and it was amazing and then they also have kind of they're basically, the entire place is like being in Star Wars, and they use sound effects very cleverly. So there's like sounds of starships going overhead as you're walking around. Uh, and I went with a friend after Chicago. By coincidence, my friend from uni, Fred, was on holiday uh, in Orlando at that point. So we went to Galaxy together. And his partner remarked, saying, I've only just properly twigged that when I hear starships going overhead, they're not actually starships, they're sound effects, because it is so immersive that you just don't really notice that it's not real uh it was very good there is an app which you can download which has an augmented reality game you can play throughout the park i didn't really do that as much on the first day but i did a lot of it on previous things there are two rides both of which designed to be relatively accessible even to people who don't really like rides the Spanish is not a huge fan of roller coasters but enjoyed both a lot and it was really really good and um yeah did you dress up no i didn't I haven't got a Star Wars cosplay at the moment.
1: Don't you think that dressing up and having there not be lots of people walking around in jeans and t-shirts is just as important in a Star Wars immersive as it is in steampunk? I'm just wondering.
0: (laughs) Yes, but I have a question for you. In the London Docklands in uh, mid-September, was it uh, 40 degrees? (laughs) No. No. There is an element here of um, you're going to be very warm in August in Orlando, as it turns out.
1: But, But there are places... I've seen Star Wars. There are places in the Star Wars universe that are 40 degrees. There must be appropriate clothing
0: in those places. Well, mostly if you live in that kind of place all the time, you get used to the heat, right?
2: I mean, the appropriate clothing for wearing to a theme park in Orlando in August is basically as little as possible and incredibly sturdy shoes. So... Yeah... It it doesn't really feel like it destroys... I would say it doesn't really feel like it destroys the immersion somehow. I mean, also bear in mind that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is only one small part of a much larger theme park as well. So most people are not spending their entire day immersed in Galaxy's Edge. They're going there for a couple of hours and then, you know, going off to ride the Slinky Dog roller coaster.
0: I spent a large amount of my day in Galaxy's Edge and then I spent a further five days in Galaxy's Edge going back and doing all the things because there is a game... And I did the game. I haven't quite finished the game. so I'm going to have to go back. This is very <laughs> sad. But yeah, so there's two. There's a ride where you can ride the Millennium Falcon. And you get to fly or be the gunner or be the mechanic on a smuggling run to Corellia. And that's very cool. I got to fly the Falcon on my own because I went on the single rider queue. And I got to the front and there was literally no one else. Because I think they would just had a breakdown and they would just reopened. And they were like, do you just want to do it on your own? And I was like yes and so i did it on my own and it was brilliant and then there's rise of resistance which i don't want to talk too much about but um is amazing i wish i'd been able to go with my friend but unfortunately i had to fly back to london because uh, the day i went with him was the day we were flying home but um i said like what was your face like uh when you got off the shuttle in rise and he sent me a photo of him being like this and i was like yes that is correct face
1: it does sound amazing. It does sound like, and, and Disney generally does sound like it would be amazingly good. I don't want to suggest it wouldn't be.
0: It is is quite fun.
2: When Rise of the Distance isn't broken, which unfortunately is a lot, it is like technologically incredible. Like there are things where I'm only vaguely, you know, can only vaguely work out how they are doing those effects. It, it is really good. Alison, you would love it because there's so many like visual illusions and things like that. You would be like, oh, how are they doing this hologram?
1: Yeah, I'm saving up my pennies. I'm going to do it. But you know, I and also I love all of that. So I also love like, I, I love stuff that was state of the art in 1872 as well. So even if I don't get to go until it's quite old hat, I'll still like it.
0: And then I went to get I went to do the lightsaber, which is kind of a a ride you can't do unless you spend a lot of money on a lightsaber. Liz, so you get a plus one
1: Aren't all of these rides you can't do unless you spend a lot of money going to a theme park?
0: Well yeah, but the most of them aren't extra money when you get in. It's not the rollercoaster tycoon model of charge them when they enter and then charge them again when they ride.
1: Yeah, but could you now eBay your lightsaber?
0: Oh yeah, but I don't want to. Yeah. But yeah, and so and so it's like a kind of like a little miniature theatrical thing with like actors and like the speeches perfectly lined up with the sound cues and the lighting. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but it was pretty freaking amazing. And Espania was my plus one. And Liz was my little brother's plus one because my little brother's wife was like, you do you. So the lightsaber was very good.
1: And basically, I just had a whale of a time. I kind of have this question of, oh, but what? W- wasn't it that everybody else buying a lightsaber was a seven-year-old? But I'm sure that's not actually true. <laughs>
0: No, I think. I don't think any. I think there were a couple of kids, but it was definitely majority. Um, it's
1: like collector's
2: Lego.
0: Yeah, tis.
2: Yeah, I mean, if your kid just wants a lightsaber, you can buy them a $25 plastic lightsaber.
0: That's the other thing, because, like, if you've got a child who wants a lightsaber, buy them a metal one that comes with the 36 inch long light bulb on the end is like. It, it,
1: yeah. <laughs> I did go to Disney when I was 14, to Disney World, and it was very good then. Um, But I I feel like they might have a couple of new rides and new attractions. That was 1979, and Star Wars. Star Wars was an enormous thing, but they didn't have. It wasn't owned by Disney then.
0: When did Star Tours open?
2: Uh, Late 80s.
0: 87, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's possible that they have a few more rides and stuff than they had in 1979, Alison. Had Space Mountain. Still have Space Mountain, and and uh, uh, also they hadn't really. I think they've got a lot better at managing
1: queues so one of the things about phantom peak is of course no cues really you know there was a very sad bit where somebody was waiting to talk to the guy and we we were getting to the end of a quest and getting our payoff for the end of the quest which is playing cards that you can keep and um and there were some people waiting to talk to him and they were clearly at the very beginning of the same quest so that was that was not great
0: yeah that is tricky
1: one of my abiding memories about Disney was that even then they were better at managing queues than any other theme park. And I went to quite a lot of theme parks, but there were a lot of queues, I remember. I mean, we must have spent more than half our time at Disney World in queues.
2: Then you need to get up earlier is the solution. No, no, we, I mean, we, we got into the park at the
1: first moment that you could get into the park. I mean, this was 1979. They didn't have all of the uh, fast pass and... Um...
0: Oh, they don't have fast pass anymore.
2: They don't have that anymore. You've got to pay.
1: And the Port Merion thing, which we got to do this year, which is that if you're a privileged person at Port Merion, you get to hang out in the village after everyone's left. Um, And I think Disney do that, right? Or or before everyone arises and after after everyone leaves. Yep.
0: Only if you're Liz. Which I did. Because Liz is very special.
2: John joined me one morning and, you know, we were there half an hour before the scheduled opening which was the early opening, and it was already open. You basically just like, if you arrived at the time, they say the theme park opens, you are late. So that's the way to do it. But I I don't don't think we, I don't know about you, John, but I did not spend a lot of time in queues. I mean, I queued for half an hour for Rise of Resistance that first day, but that's about it.
0: The only time I queued for a long time was when I queued for Rise of Resistance and it broke down while I was queuing. That was a long queue. But especially because if you go to theme parks... I just single rider most things. And those, like, you go from, like, some queue to basically zero. Going as a single rider is so much quicker.
2: We went on, I think, all but one Disney ride, which have a single rider queue, John. They don't have them.
0: Oh, no. That was the Octothor podcast. And it's goodbye for me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license.
2: This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.